0: Mughal decline, however, unlike the Safavids and the Ottomans, trundled along a different gradient. Imperial impotence was its chief characteristic and not the dilemma of stranded centralization. The absence within the Mughal center of an institution comparable to the firearm wielding Janissaries or the Ghulam meant that it lacked a basic core around which centralization could be effected and a recovery staged against the military aristocracy. That is, the Mughal center lacked any institution with which it could advance an alternate paradigm for rule. Therefore, it was compelled to relax its hold on former dominions and concede ground to more vibrant regional formations. In other words, the great Mughal canopy that extended over the subcontinent gradually acquired a number of large discolorations throughout the 18th century in the form of patches that marked the emergence of a slew of successor states, vis-à-vis Awad, Bengal, Hyderabad, the Marathas, and the Sikhs. Rohan D'Souza, Crisis Before the Fall, Some Speculations on the Decline of the Ottomans, Safavids, and Mughals, Social Scientist, Volume 30, 2002. Assalamualaikum. alaikum, welcome back to Season 9 of the Islamic History Podcast. This season, we are continuing our discussion on the Mughal Empire. This is Episode 9-16, Farooq Siyar's Folly. This will be the final episode of this season. Before we get into the main story, let's do a brief recap of the previous episode. Emperor Jahan Dar-Shah is infatuated with his chief consort, a former dancing girl named Lal Kunwar. He gives her and her family lavish gifts and titles which upsets the empire's nobility. Farukh Siyar, the son of Mushan, allies with the Sayyid brothers of the Barha family. Together, they lead an army towards Agra. In January 1713, Jahan Shah's army clashes with Farukh Siyar's forces. Farukh Siyar emerges victorious and Jahan Shah is forced to flee. Farukh Siyar becomes the new Mughal emperor and rewards the Sayyid brothers with high positions. However, other members of the nobility are uneasy with the growing power of the Sayyid brothers. Farukh Siyar proceeds to remove all potential rivals. Jahan Shah and his top advisor, Zulfiqar Khan, are both executed. Several other princes are either executed or imprisoned. The emperor and his nobles try to get one of the Syed brothers killed by starting a war with the Rajputs. But in a strange twist, the emperor winds up marrying a Rajput princess instead. In 1715, the Mughal army finally puts down the secret rebellion that had begun in 1709. And in 1717, Emperor Farooq grants the EIC significant financial concessions. And with that, let's discuss the Turanis and Iranis. Turanis and Iranis The royal court was divided into two main groups of nobles, There were the Turanis, these were nobles who were of Central Asian origin, that is Turks and Mongols and people like that, and they were led by a man named Mirujumla. And then there were the Iranis, these were nobles of Persian origin, and they were led by the Sayyid brothers. The Turani nobles did not like the influence of the Sayyid brothers, and they were constantly plotting against them and had even persuaded the emperor to do the same. They had convinced the emperor that the Sayyids were trying to seize the throne for themselves. The Turani nobles had advised the emperor that it was his right to appoint whom he wanted to the top positions in the empire, yet here were the Sayyid brothers putting their own people into these roles. The Turanis ultimately, what they really wanted to do, they wanted to drive the Sayyid brothers away from the royal court, because once the Sayyid brothers no longer had that, imperial protection, so to say, they would be easier to deal with. But as we've seen from the Rajput debacle of the previous episode, the Tehranis and the emperor really weren't good with their plots. Also, the Syed brothers had nearly 10,000 of their own soldiers stationed in Delhi, so there was no easy way to get rid of them. Mirta Jumla was one of these Tehrani nobles plotting against the Syed brothers. We mentioned him in the previous episode. His original name was Sharia Tula Khan and he had been given this new title after Farooq Siyar's victory. Mir Jumla convinced the emperor to appoint one of the brothers, Sayyid Hussein, as the governor of the Deccan. But there was a problem with this. Emperor Farukh Siyar had already promised the two Sayyid brothers that they could stay together at the royal court in Delhi. So, Sayyid Hussein Ali, the one who had been appointed as the new governor of the Deccan, he requested permission to send one of his assistants to govern the Deccan instead. Well, this reply angered the emperor and led to a heated exchange of words. Farooq Sayyid accused Sayyid Hussein Ali of disobedience and disloyalty, and Sayyid Hussein Ali stormed out of the royal court without following proper protocols. In most cases, you don't want to turn your back on the emperor in anger, especially if you want to keep your head attached to your shoulders. Well, as he left, Sayyid Hussein told the emperor that he and his brother would not be attending court any longer. These two brothers, Sayyid Abdullah and Sayyid Hussein, they held very high roles within the Mughal Empire. Sayyid Abdullah was the Prime Minister, and Sayyid Hussein, who was supposed to be the new governor of the Deccan, he was the army paymaster. The Prime Minister managed the affairs of the state, while the paymaster managed the affairs of the army. And the last thing the emperor wanted was an angry, unpaid army. With the Sayyid brothers not attending court, the state affairs began to suffer. So Emperor Farukh Syar went to his grandmother for advice, and she advised him to keep the Sayyid brothers happy. She reminded him that they had helped him gain the throne in the first place. And, against his objections, Farukh Syar's mother also intervened, not his grandmother, his mother. His mother met with the Sayyid brothers to resolve the issue, and she finally convinced them to resume their duties. But, of course, the Sayyid brothers had their conditions. They demanded the emperor send Mirjumla, that was the head or the leader of the Turani nobles. They demanded the emperor send, send Mirjumla to Bihar. And they also wanted all of Mir Jumla's duties to be transferred to Sayyid Abdullah, the prime minister. In return, if the emperor agreed, in return, Sayyid Hussein would go down to the Deccan and take up his duties without any argument. Emperor Farukh agreed to their demands. However, before he left for the Deccan, Sayyid Hussein warned the emperor that if anything happened to his brother, he'd be back. Farulh Siyar's current governor of the Deccan was a man named Chin Khalish Khan, who now had the title of Nizamul Mulk. We had mentioned Chen Khalish Khan before, he was the son of the blind general Ghaziuddin Faroz Jung. Nazimul Mukh had been doing an excellent job down in the Deccan keeping the Marathas in check. However, he apparently did not like living in the Deccan because as soon as Farukh recalled him in 1715, Nizamul Mukh left without a single word of protest. The Emperor and the Tehrani nobles saw this as an opportunity to get rid of Sayyid Hussain. Emperor Farukh contacted the governor of Gujarat, Daoud Khan Pani and offered him the governorship of the Deccan if he eliminated Sayyid Hussein Ali. If this name sounds familiar. That's because Dawood Khan Pani was the man who tried to get the EIC, the East India Company, to pay more taxes back in episode 9-11. But the EIC called his bluff by threatening to abandon Calcutta, and so the increase in taxes never came. Dawood Khan Pani, the former governor of Bengal, and now the governor of Gujarat, he accepted Farooq Sayar's suggestion, his request, and Dawood Khan Pani declared himself the new governor of the Deccan. Well, inevitably, the army of Dawood Khan Pani and the army of Sayyid Hussein classed just outside of Burhanpur. Dawood Khan Pani had asked the Marathas of the Deccan to assist him, and the Marathas arrived but they remained on the sideline and did not join the battle. Dawood Khan Pani went into battle without wearing any armor because his thing, he just wanted to get close enough to kill Sayyid Hussain and for some reason apparently he wanted to do it himself. However, before he could get close enough to kill Sayyid Hussain, he himself was shot and killed by a musket. And now that Dawood Khan Pani was dead, the Marathas went onto the battlefield and congratulated Sayyid Hussein on his victory. This moment right here marked the beginning of a critical alliance, a very important alliance between the Sayyid brothers and the Marathas. Additionally, furthermore, Farooq Sayyar's letter to Dawood Khan Pani telling him to get rid of Sayyid Hussein was discovered on his body. And so now the tension is getting deeper. Jumla, who had been sent to Bihar at the request of the Sayyid brothers, was now facing an army revolt because he had not been able to pay the army salaries. As a result, he fled back to Delhi and abandoned his post in Bihar without permission from the emperor. But nonetheless, Emperor Farrukhsiyar was happy to see him, however, the Sayyids were not. That's because Mirjumla's return to the royal court was a violation of the agreement between the emperor and the Sayyid brothers. And so, to appease the Sayyids, the emperor decided to send Mirjumla to Lahore instead, but this weakened the Tehrani noble faction in Delhi. The Tehrani nobles then went on to advise Emperor Farukh Syar to just flat out remove Sayyid Abdullah as prime minister. However, these same nobles, they were not fully committed to the emperor themselves and they were afraid to openly oppose the Sayyids. And without their full support, the most that Farouk Sayyar could do was make appointments without actually consulting Sayyid Abdullah. This, of course, naturally angered Sayyid Abdullah, who was still the prime minister, and whenever the emperor made an appointment without his permission or without letting him know, Sayyid Abdullah immediately canceled it. Then there was an assassination attempt on Sayyid Abdullah during Eid prayers. After that, whenever he moved about the city, Sayyid Abdullah was always surrounded by thousands of armed guards. Meanwhile, his brother Sayed Hussein was down in the Deccan consolidating his power. His alliance with the Marathas had grown stronger, and he had even broken an unprecedented agreement allowing the Marathas to handle tax collection. Let me read an excerpt that summarizes the current situation. Hussein Ali Khan began negotiations with Shahuji in mid seventeen seventeen and finally arrived at a formal treaty in february seventeen eighteen. The boldness with which this treaty conceded Mughal failure and Maratha success is startling. The Sayyid brothers were prepared to admit Shahuji and the Marathas into partnership in the Southern Empire in return for their political and military support in the struggle at the center. The new agreement gave Shahuji unchallenged authority over Shivaji's original Swaraj lands in Maharashtra and coastal Konkan and, in addition, ceded recent Maratha conquests in Berar, Gondwana, and Karnatak. A critical concession was the right to employ Maratha agents to collect the 3% share of imperial revenues from Chout and Sardashmuki throughout the six provinces of the Deccan. In return, Shahuji agreed to pay tribute of 1 million rupees and to maintain 15,000 Maratha troopers to be placed at the disposal of Hussein Ali Khan. John F. Richards, The Mughal Empire Things were only getting worse in Delhi. Ajit Singh, who was the father-in-law of the emperor, was also a staunch ally of the science. He tried to mediate some sort of reconciliation between the two sides, but it did not last very long. A man named Diwan Ratan Chand was Sayyid Abdullah's tax collector. Due to Diwan Ratan Chan's corruption, it became increasingly difficult to collect enough taxes to fund the empire's expenses. This led to the army's salary getting delayed longer and longer, which of course led to unrest within the military. Farooq Sayyar blamed this unrest on Sayyid Abdullah, which led to more arguments between the emperor and his prime minister and reignited the tensions that Ajit Singh had managed to tamper down for a while. The Sayyids were getting tired of Emperor Farooq Sayyar and were looking for some way to get rid of him, just like he was trying to get rid of them as well. However, the Emperor had run out of ideas to get rid of the Sayyids and he was also running out of allies. The End of Farooq Sayyar Sayyid Abdullah sent a message to his brother in the Deccan asking him to come north. Sayyid Hussein obliged and started marching towards Delhi with a strong army that included 13,000 Maratha troops. When Emperor Farooq Sayyar found out what was happening, he panicked and rushed to Sayyid Abdullah's house and begged for reconciliation. He pleaded with him to call off the army marching towards Delhi. Emperor Farooq Sayyar had no one else he could turn to. He was isolated and was now facing the wrath of the most powerful family in the empire all on his own. Those same Tehrani nobles that had encouraged him to turn against the Sayyids in the first place were now nowhere to be found. They were either unable or unwilling to help him. Now, to be fair, this was partially Farouk Sayar's fault for trusting these incompetent nobles. But his actions, or lack thereof, had turned some of the Turanis against him. Even Nizamul Mok, one of his most loyal nobles, had abandoned him. Nizamul Mok, that was really Chin Khalish Khan, the son of the blind general, remember, he had left the Deccan when Sayyid Hussein came down there to take over. The emperor had promised to give Nizamul Mok a high position within his administration, but for whatever reason, that never happened. And so by this time, with things starting to fall apart, Nizam al had grown tired of waiting on the sidelines. This was just one example where the emperor had dropped the ball. Nizam al family member, his relative, Muhammad Amin Khan, his loyalty was also not certain. Muhammad Amin Khan was the noble who had questioned the captured Sikh leader, Banda, about killing innocent Muslims. We discussed this in the previous episode. At one point in time, Muhammad Amin Khan was on the same side with the Sayyids, but like all the other Tehrani nobles, he had turned against them also. And so his loyalty was not quite certain, so now the emperor was all by himself at this critical juncture. Eventually, Sayyid Hussein's army arrived and camped just outside of Delhi. Some of the nobles advised the emperor to fight the Sayyids, but Farouk Siyar was still hoping that they could find some sort of compromise. In a last-ditch effort to avoid bloodshed, the emperor once again reached out to the Sayyid brothers, hoping to find a peaceful settlement. And to his surprise, the Sayyids agreed to meet with him. They met, and they reminded the emperor of all the plots he had orchestrated against them, but the emperor tried to brush these things aside and said, let's start over with a clean slate so the Sayyids finally demanded that they be given control of the imperial guards and the artillery. But this may have been a bit too much for the emperor. Emperor Farukhsiyar hesitated and the Sayyid brothers had had enough. The situation had reached a point of no return and there would be no reconciliation. And on February 22, 1719, the Sayyid brothers' troops took control of the fort. And when Sayyid Abdullah went to meet the emperor one last time, all pretenses at reconciliation were gone. The two men met and got into a bitter argument and exchanged harsh words. And some of those people who overheard the arguing, they thought Sayyid Abdullah had been killed and this rumor began to spread. The rumors of Sayyid Abdullah's death kept the Sayyids at bay. They didn't want to make any moves until they were certain about what had happened to him. By this time, Sayyid Hussein's army from the Deccan had moved in and occupied Delhi. This angered the people of Delhi who did not like and did not trust the Marathas. On February 28, 1719, some of the nobles and their soldiers attacked the Marathas in the Sayyid army. And several people in the streets joined in on this attack, resulting in the deaths of 1,500 Maratha soldiers in Delhi. This caused many of the Marathas to abandon the Sayyid army and start heading home. So with the nobles attacking, the Marathas leaving, the city getting close to rioting, the rumors of Sayyid Abdullah's death, everything seemed to be falling apart for the Sayyids. But just as this chaos was starting to take hold, they found out that Sayyid Abdullah was indeed alive and that the rumors of his death were wrong. This motivated the Syed forces who rallied back and started fighting against the Tehranis. Now back inside the palace, Emperor Farukh was basically a prisoner of the Syeds and he knew nothing about what was going on. The morning after they found out that Sayyid Abdullah was still alive, the Syeds decided it was time to end this while momentum was still on their side. Najmuddin, one of the younger brothers of the Syeds, gathered his men and began searching through the Red Fort for the Emperor. Going right along with them was Farukh Siyar's father-in-law, Ajit Singh. and kind of shows you where his loyalty really was. Najmuddin turned the palace upside down searching for the emperor. He searched everywhere. He even searched the palace harem, which usually was off-limits to men outside the imperial family. Except eunuchs, of course, for obvious reasons. The Turkic and Abyssinian eunuch guards of the harem tried to stop the Syeds, but they were easily overpowered. Najmuddin and his men searched throughout the entire harem, snatching the veils off the women just in case the emperor was hiding among them. Finally, the Sayyids reached the quarters of the widow of Jahan Shah. Jahan Shah, remember, was one of Jahan Darashah's brothers who was killed during the fratricidal wars. The widow was trying to hide her son, Roshan Akhtar, and told the men that they might want to search the roof. And sure enough, Najmuddin led his men to the roof, where they found a group of women huddled together. The soldiers started pushing the women off one by one, and indeed, right there was the emperor hiding amongst the women. The soldiers proceeded to beat Emperor Fedorseyar to a pulp, then dragged him off to the dungeon. Now tensions were already high in the city, and when word got out about what happened to the emperor, Delhi erupted into riots. The Saiyans had to find another prince, another Timurid prince that they could place on the throne before things got out of hand. So they went scouring through the dungeons and finally found Rafyu Darajat who was the son of Rafiushan, and Rafyu Shen was one of the sons of Bahadur Shah. Rafyu Shen had also been defeated during the fratricidal wars that led to Jahan Darajat's victory. The Sayyid brothers took Rafael Darajat out of the dungeon, cleaned him up, and placed him on the throne as their new puppet emperor. Two months later, Farukh Siyar, who was now a resident of those same dungeons, tried to bribe his guards. And when the Syed brothers learned about it, they had him blinded. But they were still worried that Farukh Siyar might somehow cause problems, and so they tried to poison him. And somehow, he survived that also. Finally, On April 28, 1719, the Sayyid brothers ordered Farooq Sayyar to be strangled to death, and this time, he did not survive. Farooq Sayyar was only 33 years old when he died, and he had ruled for seven years. The people of Delhi, who were still upset about the whole situation, considered the Sayyid brothers to be traitors and rioted during Farooq Sayyar's funeral. The army managed to control the rioting, and some peace returned. Now, despite his weakness and despite his problems, Farouk actually had some good qualities, and the people of Delhi generally liked him. He was known for his generosity to the poor. He had given charity to men of God, regardless of which religion they belonged to. And after his death, many of these people who used to accept charity from Emperor Farouk refused to accept the same charity from those nobles who had been involved with his downfall three emperors in five months. The following month, some ambitious women in the harem of Agra had a bright idea. They convinced a young man named Nekusiyar to declare himself the true emperor. Prince Nekusiyar was the son of Prince Mohammed Akbar. Muhammad Akbar was the son of Arangzeb and he had allied with the Marathas in an attempt to overthrow his father. Well, the plot failed and Prince Akbar fled to Persia and if you want to know more about it, go back to episode 9-10. However, Prince Akbar left his son, Nekusiyar, behind in India when he fled. And Nekusiyar has spent his entire life in the harem in Agra. So on May 18th, 1719, Prince Nekosiyar declared himself the new emperor. He sent a very polite letter to the Syed brothers asking them to recognize his claim. But the Syed brothers weren't trying to deal with any more emperors at this time, though that would soon change as you'll see in a moment. Also, Prince Nekosiyar reportedly sounded like a catamite. A catamite, close your ears if you're kind of young, a catamite is a young boy who is the sexual companion of an older man. Now, I want to make it clear Nekosayar was most likely not an actual catamite, but since he spent his entire life in the harem surrounded by women, it's not really surprising that he sounded like one. Sayyid Hussein sent an army. This army easily took control of the fort in Agra without any resistance, and according to some reports, Sayyid Hussein treated Nekosuyar well. He sent the prince off to Salimgar Fort near Delhi, where he lived out his life in a small villa until he died in 1723. But other reports state that Prince Nekosuyar was actually imprisoned at Salimgar and remained there until he died. Meanwhile, the new emperor, Rafiul Darajat, fell sick with tuberculosis and that's not really surprising considering he'd spent so many years in a dungeon. And just before his death, the Syed brothers suggested, and that is suggested in air quotes, they suggested Rafiel Darajat, the emperor, name his brother Rafiel Dawlah as his successor. Rafiel Darajat died on June 13, 1720 having only ruled for three months. But before he died, his brother, Rafiul Dawlah, was crowned as the new Mughal emperor on June 6, 1720. Rafiel Dawlah took the regal name Shah Jahan II. But this new emperor, Shah Jahan II, was addicted to opium. After he ascended the throne, Shah Jahan II tried to quit opium cold turkey and the sudden withdrawal of opium from his body led to bouts of diarrhea and, according to one biography, mental instability. Shah Jahan II died on September 18, 1720, having only ruled for four months. Muhammad Shah Rangila Now the Syeds were in trouble. The death of Shah Jahan II sent the Syed brothers into a panic. They decided to keep the emperor's death a secret while they figured out what to do. Already now, three emperors had died under their watch. Now, they were not responsible for the last two deaths, that is, Shah Jahan II and Rafael Darjad, but they were definitely responsible for Farooq Sayar's death. And, not surprisingly, the public hated them because they believed the Sayyid brothers wanted the throne for themselves. The Sayyid brothers sent their nephew, Ghulam Ali, searching through the forts and the dungeons looking for another prince. Finally, Ghulam Ali returned with Roshan Akhtar. That's the young man we mentioned earlier who the Sayyids ran across while they were searching the palace for Farukh Sayar. Roshan Akhtar was the son of Jahan Shah and the grandson of Bahadur Shah. All this time, Roshan Akhtar had been living with his mother, Fakhrun Nisa Begum, in the palace. This was the same woman who had tried to protect him earlier. And just before he left to become the new puppet emperor, his mother advised him to stay on the Sayed brother's good side. This was for his own safety. Roshan Akhtar, later to be known simply as Rangila, was the great-grandson of Aurangzeb and only 18 years old when he became the emperor. Surprisingly, he would go on to rule India for the next 30 years. On September 28, 1719, Roshan Akhtar was crowned the new Mughal emperor and he took on the regnal name Abu Muzaffar Nasiruddin Muhammad Shah Padishah but he would become known as Rangila, which means the colorful, mostly because he was a major patron of the arts. At the time of his coronation, he was engaged to Badshah Begum, who was Fadukh Syar's daughter. However, just like his predecessors, Rangila was emperor in name only. The real power was with the Sayyid brothers. Emperor Mohammed Shah Rangila was essentially a prisoner of the palace, which he was not even allowed to leave. The Sayyids had spread their tentacles throughout the entire palace. Everyone in the imperial household worked for them. This included the guards, the cooks, the servants, the waiters, the cleaners. Everyone worked for the Sayyids. Even when Rangila wanted to attend the Friday Jumar prayers, the palace guards blocked him and wouldn't let him leave. Now, eventually, he was allowed to leave to go pray Juma, but he was always surrounded by the Sayyid brothers' men. It must have been very strange for Rangila to hear the khutbah being read in his name, knowing he had no actual power nor authority. This will conclude Season 9 of the Islamic History Podcast. Before we go, I'm going to read a brief excerpt that should give you a hint of what to expect in the next season. In marked contrast to the careers of his immediate predecessors, Muhammad Shah's reign was a surprisingly long one, 1719 to 1748. Long, if tragically inglorious, this indecisive, indolent lover of the arts was forced to witness, as a virtually impotent spectator, the utter humiliation and complete disintegration of his empire. If his rather preposterous pen name was Sada Bangila ever joyous or ever colorful, his reign most certainly was not, marked as it was by several catastrophic events, notably a wave of Arata raids on Rajasthan in 1735, on Delhi in 1737, and on Bengal and Odisha in 1740. After the second of these raids came the invasion, bloody massacre, and total plunder of Delhi by Nadir Shah of Persia in 1739, followed, from 1748 onwards, by another wave of invasions by the Afghan Ahmed Shah Abdali, a.k.a. Ahmed Shah Durrani. An equally ruinous development was the de facto independence of important provinces including Hyderabad, Udh, Bihar, and Bengal. Dirk Collier, The Mughals and their India. Inshallah, we will return later this year with the conclusion of the Mughal Empire. In the meantime, if you would like to hear more podcasts about Islamic history, we have the Prophet Muhammad podcast, which is free, as well as the Islamic History podcast YouTube channel. And if you're so inclined, consider becoming a member of our premium podcast, Islamic History Exclusive. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you're an Apple or Spotify user, open the app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you're listening on Podbean, Become a patron in the Podbean app and you'll get access to all of our premium content. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash history Our premium content includes a series on the life of Salahuddin, an ongoing series about the Umayyad dynasty and one I think you'll really enjoy, our latest series on the Soviet-Afghan war. Altogether, that's well over 50 Premium episodes. Before we go, I want to thank Brother Zulfi Karsarosh for his research on the Mughal Empire and his continued support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Stay tuned for a short clip from our series on the Soviet Afghan War. And until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa Allah. And finally, President Carter had downplayed the threat of the Soviet Union. He had also gone so far as to negotiate the SALT II Treaty with the Soviet Union, which was intended to reduce ballistic missiles. However, after the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, Jimmy Carter's attitude changed completely. He became much more aggressive towards the Soviet Union. The U.S., for instance, boycotted the Olympics in Moscow in 1980. Jimmy Carter also began building up the country's military. He also prohibited the sale of grain to the Soviet Union. And he also introduced a plan to defend the Middle East and its oil fields from any Soviet incursions. Another big change was that Jimmy Carter ordered the CIA to begin operations against Soviet interests, particularly in Afghanistan. To fulfill this request from the president... The CIA began sending some of its huge stockpile of Soviet weapons to Afghanistan for the Afghan Mujahideen to use against the Soviet troops. The CIA preferred to use Soviet weapons in these uh, rebellions and all of their little devious shadowy dealings in order to prevent things from tracing back to the United States. So they wouldn't use American made weapons. They would use Soviet made weapons. The CIA began doing this almost immediately after the Soviet union invaded Afghanistan. And Jimmy Carter also changed his attitude towards the Al Haq of Pakistan. He now began to negotiate with the Haq in order to use Pakistan as a base of operations against the Soviets. But Ziaul Haq, he knew the United States had had a record of abandoning its allies. For instance, South Vietnam just a few years earlier. And as we know, in our time, the United States also turned against Saddam Hussein in the 19 in the late 1980s, early 1990s, really. And most recently, how the United States turned against both the Kurds in Syria, as well as the uh, the U.S. puppet state set up in Afghanistan in 2021. Ziaul Haq demanded that everything go through Pakistani intelligence. So anything the CIA or the United States wanted to do in Afghanistan, it had to go through the ISI. The CIA's plan in all of this was not really to defeat the Soviet Union. Neither the CIA nor the United States or Jimmy Carter, none of them really had any illusions that the Afghan Mujahideen had any chance of defeating the Soviet Union. They were hoping to frustrate the Soviets, but the support that the CIA and even Pakistan was providing to the Afghan rebels during this time was very minimal in the big scheme of things. So on that note, let's discuss the organization of the Afghan resistance movement. As we mentioned in the previous episode, the headquarters of the resistance was in Peshawar, Pakistan, which is the capital of the Northwest Frontier Province. Peshawar contained a large market area where weapons and gear from dead Soviet soldiers were bought and sold. And we mentioned how the uh, Afghan Mujahideen needed this to provide for their families and to make ends meet. Peshawar was surrounded and filled with Afghan refugee camps. In fact, there were more Afghans in Peshawar than there were Pakistanis. The resistance movement had two layers. There were the Afghan political leaders who financed supplied and controlled the Mujahideen, and then, of course, there were the Mujahideen fighters and their commanders. Each Mujahideen group was affiliated and backed by a political leader or some political party. Now, we don't mean actual political parties that were trying to become president of Afghanistan or anything like that. These were really just strong men who had put themselves in a position to be intermediaries between the government, particularly the Pakistani government, and the Mujahideen fighters. So these Mujahideen politicians or Mujahideen parties or these political parties, not sure how to really call them, they were the intermediary between the ISI and the Mujahideen. They received the money and the arms from Pakistan, and they passed them on to the fighters. Now, obviously it should come as no surprise that these Mujahideen parties, these Mujahideen politicians, they kept a good portion of the money and weapons for themselves. And these politicians lived very lavish lives, particularly in Kuwaita, which is in Balochistan. And so there was a lot of resentment between the real Mujahideen, the actual fighters who were risking their lives, and these politicians who were sitting up there uh, enjoying the good life in Kuwaita.